Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just pray together before we jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. We set it aside in our hearts. We pause and our attention is focused now upon you and what your spirit would say to us here this morning, this church. Thank you for the word of God and the spirit of God who is here to bring it to our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Merriam-Webster thought it was important to catalog definitions of words, hence the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Uh, He was a believer, and there's been many editions since he first penned that. If you were to look up the word manifesto in his dictionary, he would assign it this definition. A manifesto is a declaration publicly of one's intentions or views. For instance, you have the Communist Manifesto, first penned back in 1848 by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, or the Humanist Manifesto, penned in 1933. In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have the Manifesto of the Kingdom of God. It is the King making His public declaration of His intention for the Kingdom. It's popular to see bumper stickers or wristbands that have the initials WWJD. What would Jesus do? We've seen them everywhere. You may not know that that originally came from a book written in 1896, Charles Sheldon's book, In His Steps, where a church in a local community got together and decided that for one year they would ask that question about everything they did in life before they made any decision, before there was any activity, they would ask, what would Jesus do? And it changed their lives. The good news is we don't have to guess what Jesus would do. He told us what he would do, and then he did it for us. And we're about to read in the next several weeks, in these three chapters, what Jesus tells us, his followers, the followers in the kingdom of God, to be doing. If I were to sum up the Sermon on the Mount in one word, I would give it the term discipleship. Now, I know Christians love that word. It's in in books and in seminars, and uh, we love discipleship. Uh, But discipleship is more than learning a subject. True discipleship is learning from the example of the one doing the teaching. Learning from the example of the one doing the teaching. That's why people can go to seminars and read books and come to church every week and still not follow Christ. It's emulating the behavior of the Master. This is the Kingdom Manifesto. I remember the first time I read it. The first book of the Bible I ever read was Matthew. For an obvious reason, I had a New Testament that was the first book in the book. And I was going through the Gospel of Matthew. It was called a red-letter edition. And uh, I was sort of befuddled that there were no red words, or not many of them, until you get to chapter 5. And I remember thinking, when's the red going to come? What is Jesus going to say? And then I found out in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, He has a lot to say. And you notice it's all red letter. These are the words of Jesus Christ his greatest sermon, perhaps, and perhaps the, 
one that is most greatly misunderstood, the manifesto of the kingdom of God. We're going to read some things over the next several weeks together that are going to comfort you in this sermon. We're going to read some things that are going to bug you as you get to it. The Bible does that, doesn't it? It's a sharp, two-edged sword, isn't it? It's been said that sometimes you read the Bible and it comforts the afflicted. At other times, it will afflict the comfortable. And we need them both, don't we? Now, it's called the Sermon on the Mount because it was given on one of those gentle rolling hills in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. I never really liked the title, to be honest with you, the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't really give you much information. It's sort of like if I were to say, my message this morning is entitled, The Sermon from the Pulpit. It's more than just a sermon on a mount. It is a mountain of a sermon. And if I were to give it a title, I would call it the Sermon of the Monarch. It's the king's message for kingdom followers. The Sermon from the Monarch, the Kingdom Manifesto. It is really the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And the crowd sort of picked up on that. For you'll notice if you turn to the last chapter of the sermon, chapter 7, look at the last two verses after the sermon is finished. Verse 28, So it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I had a friend who used to fill in at my pulpit in Albuquerque several times until he went to heaven. He died in his 80s. Roy Gustafson was his name. I loved Roy. He was a good friend and an associate with Dr. Billy Graham. They went to school together, went to college together. And uh, Roy Gustafson tells the most classic story. He was in Bible school in Florida with Billy Graham. And they were sitting in the class taught by William Evans. You may have read the book Great Doctrines of the Bible by William Evans. It was that William Evans giving the teaching in his class. During class, their classmate, William Macy, fell asleep. And was just... And, and this really bugged old Dr. Evans who pointed at Roy and said, you wake that boy up. And Roy responded, you wake him up, Dr. Evans. You put him to sleep. (laughs) That could never have been said about Jesus. Far from being boring, Jesus was riveting in how he shared his truth. This morning, I want to draw your attention to three general things in this sermon. First of all, the multitudes that are gathered around him. That's what we're going to look at first. Then we're going to look at the master himself and what he is doing as he starts this. And then finally, the message that he gives. So let's look at verse 1, the multitude. And seeing the multitude, he went up on a mountain. Now stop right there. We need to get a little context here. So would you go back to chapter 4, the 23rd verse, where we read, Jesus went about all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. 
Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. You know, Jesus always had crowds around him. He always drew a multitude. And there were a number of reasons for that. One of them is that he had such compassion. He had such compassion. Sometimes he would see a a weary, spiritually beat-up crowd He'd have compassion. We read in Matthew chapter 9, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Other times he noticed their sickness. And once again, he had compassion. Matthew 14, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. He was moved with compassion for them and he healed their sick Sometimes they were just hungry, physically hungry, and he was compassionate. Matthew 15, Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said, I have compassion on the multitude because they now have continued with me three days and they have nothing to eat. So whether you were sick or full, whether you were... uh, mentally unstable or mentally stable, whether you were rich or poor, powerful or oppressed, Jesus loved them all. And the point is, everyone needs Jesus. And Jesus is for everyone. All can come to him. Some people don't like multitudes. They don't like it. In fact, uh, some churches don't like it when the church grows. They're resistant to it. Uh, I I even wonder if some of the disciples or or people who lived around that mountain, Mount of Olives, or excuse me, the mount where this sermon was given, maybe when they were there that day thought, boy, this hill was a lot different before he came. Harry Ironside used to tell a story of a church that he saw in a town that had a terrific banner over the entrance of it. It said, Jesus only. And he thought, isn't that great? Jesus only. Until he started learning about this church, he learned that it was kind of narrow-minded and very uninviting, and uh, he smiled the day that the wind blew three of the letters off, and it more accurately read, us only. (laughs) That's why I'm glad to be a part of a church that likes growth, growth in terms of spiritual depth and even growth numerically when and if multitudes come. They came around Jesus. Now, who were these multitudes? Uh... What were they doing? Why were they following? Well, did you notice back in chapter 4, that last verse, there's multitudes or crowds from five different regions. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from the ten cities or the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Ever seen a multitude? Isn't that a funny question to ask anyone in Orange County? Ever seen a multitude? When you're on the freeway every morning, it's a multitude. When you go to the mall, it's a multitude. When you go to an angel game, it's a multitude. What kind of people are in a multitude? 
Why are they there? Answer, lots of different people for lots of different motivations. No different with Jesus. No different than with Jesus. Some people followed Christ out of spiritual motivation. They they truly loved and wanted to serve and learn from Him. It was a pure spiritual motivation. The 12 apostles would be in that crowd. Other disciples would be as well. But not everyone. I would say that others follow Jesus out of messianic expectation. He's going to be the deliverer. He's the one that's going to take the Roman yoke from off of them and and make them number one, set them up for the kingdom age. That's why in John chapter 6 we read that they tried to take Jesus by force and make him a king. Then there were others who followed Jesus out of immediate gratification. Jesus was a healing line. He was the bread line. He was a free lunch. In John chapter 2, we read, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Then there was others who followed Jesus, I would say, out of simple investigation. They were just curious. They heard about this guy. They wanted to check him out for themselves. Again, Matthew 21 Jesus had come, this is the last time he comes to Jerusalem, and the city was moved saying, who is this man? Purely out of curiosity. This kind of group is what we would call looky-loos. And I say, bring them on. Bring them on. Imagine last week as people were driving by and we didn't do a good job of getting people in and out between those two services for obvious reasons, but it it was packed down the street. Imagine what people who didn't know what was going on, what they were thinking. They'd say, what's happening in there? Now I'm curious, what kind of a group would wait in that kind of a line to get into a church? I think it's great. Curiosity killed the cat, but curiosity can save others. A lot of people were simply following Jesus out of curiosity. Not everyone seated here this morning is here for the same reason. Jesus gave a parable of the sower and the seed. Some, he said, was sown on the path, and Satan immediately took away the seed. Others came on the ground where it was rocky. They didn't have much depth. Others were sown on the soil where the weeds came and choked up the seed. Cares of this world, cares of other things. Then Jesus said some of it fell on good ground and bore forth fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. That parable describes every single church, every church gathering, every Christian meeting. It describes a variety of reasons that people come to fellowship. Some are here this morning for no other motivation than just, I have joy, I want to worship, I love Jesus. And if you are, great. Others are here who are needy. They have broken hearts. They need help. We're glad you're here. Others have come with expectations of God or of church. They're just curious to find out what this church would have to offer. But we want to say, no matter what reason you are here, 
or will come, we are glad you have come for whatever reason. I remember some of my assistant pastors used to sort of get miffed at Easter time and Christmas time. We call them the C and E's, the Christmas and Easter. And you'd sort of feel like saying every Easter, Merry Christmas, in case we don't see you for another year. (laughs) But I say, no, for whatever reason they come, let them come. It could be that that's the time something's going to latch on and they're going to follow Christ. So that's the multitude. Let's, Let's turn our attention to the master. In verse 1 of chapter 5, Seeing the multitudes, he went up onto a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Notice that Jesus was sitting down. He was not standing behind a pulpit. Rabbis, when they would teach their students, sometimes would walk with them along the road or stand and teach them things. Whenever they did, it was considered unofficial, informal. When a rabbi wanted to make an official proclamation, the rabbi would sit and the disciples would stand. See, we have things backwards here this morning, folks. If we want to do it right, I'll sit and you'll stand for the message. We sometimes speak of a professor holding a chair in the university, meaning he has a position of authority. When the Catholic Pope speaks ex cathedra, It's an official pronouncement. It means he is speaking from the chair. Jesus was seated. He had something very important to say. Notice this as well. When he was seated, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. This is Jesus teaching, not Jesus preaching. And there is a difference. This is instruction more than it is evangelism. One of the great needs today, I believe, in the church is teaching the Bible. And there is a difference between just teaching from the Bible, out of the Bible, with the Bible, and teaching the Bible. The church has, by and large, been preached to death. I know some places where they think that the guiltier the congregation felt, the more the pastor did his job. He made him guilty in Jesus' name. <laughs> and so they're exhorted. They're hammered. You ought to love more. You ought to witness more. You ought to have a better marriage. All the while, the sheep are frustrated saying, you're right. I should love more. I should witness more. I should have a better marriage. Would you please instruct me how? Would you teach me how to do that? And so Jesus opened his mouth and he taught them. Now, one of the keys to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is that it's a message not to the crowds. It's a message to disciples. Notice that distinction. He saw the multitudes, but it says his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, them being them disciples, not the crowd. The Sermon on the Mount does not have a broad, universal application to the unbelieving world. I've read commentaries on this, and some say that Sermon on the Mount is God's plan of salvation, that if you ever hope to go to heaven, you have to keep the Sermon on the Mount word for word. Other people will say that it's a charter for world peace, and they ask nations to embrace the Sermon on the Mount and keep the Sermon on the Mount. Others will say that it's a sermon filled with fine examples. 
It's full of nice sayings. You know, you got Beatitudes, a golden rule, birds chirping, peace reigning, everybody standing around saying kumbaya, can't we all just get along? They miss the point. The Sermon on the Mount is not for the crowds. It's for disciples. It's for followers of Christ. By the way, expecting unbelieving people to act like Christians is insane. I've heard people say, you ought to act like a Christian. Well, what if he's not a Christian? Maybe he should become one first. And then having been filled with the Spirit and the ability, he can then, by God's grace, act what is the truth. But this begs a question. Why would Jesus Christ, having this crowd of people around him, not speak to the crowd generally, but speak to the disciples? I mean, now's not the time to give a sermon, Jesus. It's time to give an altar call, right? You've got crowds of unsaved people and you're having church? The answer to that is found in Matthew 9. I want you to turn right, go down a few streets, Matthew chapter 9. Gives us the answer. Verse 35. Jesus went about all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to the disciples, The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into the harvest. Now, go down into chapter 10. The disciples are named. Look at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Look at verse 7. As you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do you reach the unsaved? Primarily, here's the method I believe that Jesus is teaching. Disciple people and then dispatch those that you've discipled. Teach them, train them, and then turn them loose into the crowd. Now, in the next several weeks... God willing, we're going to see some of the people that you bring here come to know Christ. We're going to pray for that. We're going to trust God for that. We're going to throw out the net and give people an opportunity publicly to receive Christ. We're hoping and praying for that. But you're the evangelist. You go witness to them. You go invite them. We have an interesting task. Let me just frame it for you so you understand. If you took, they say, if you took every unbeliever in the world on planet Earth and stood them up in a line back to back, it would form a line that would go around the entire globe 30 times. And the line is growing 20 miles longer every single day. And you go, no, Skip, that doesn't comfort me. That seems like the task is so far out of reach, I could never do anything about that. Look at it a different way. If you took a stadium and you rented it every night for 35 years, you had the budget. You're going to pack the stadium out, 
50,000 people every night, every day of the year, for 35 years, and every night for 35 years, a 1,000 people give their lives to Christ. By the time you're done, 35 years later, you'll be further behind the task of world evangelization than the day you started. You say, what? That doesn't make sense. It seemed like you'd be further advanced. No, you'd be further behind because the exponential birth rate growth of our planet is such that by the time 35 years is up, there'll be so many people that with the ratio, you'll be further behind. You say, well, now I'm really depressed because what hope is there if not for those kind of events? Those events are important. Get behind them, support them. But look at it this way. If you were the only Christian on earth, the only Christian on earth, and you said, Lord, within this next 12 months, this next year, help me to lead one single person to Christ. What if God answered your prayer so that at the end of 12 months, the end of the first year, there's two believers, you and the person you led to faith. Then you two got together and you prayed, in the next year, let us both lead a person apiece to Christ so that at the end of year two, you have four people. End of year three, eight people. Then 16, then 32, then 64. Exponentially, in 35 years... You will be fighting over pagans to evangelize, basically. There will be none left. That's the idea. The crowd should be taught and equipped and then sent out individually to share the gospel with people around the world. Now, finally, look at the message that Jesus preaches. We're not going to look at it all. We're just going to notice a few things. It says in verse 2 that he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying... If there, if there ever was a time when I wish there were cassette tapes, CDs, and MP3s, it was of Jesus' message. Wouldn't it be great to hear Jesus teaching these disciples? Wow. What did he teach them? What's the theme of the Sermon on the Mount? In a nutshell, it's the kingdom of God. It's kingdom living. It's the theme of Jesus' whole ministry. His first message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He taught the kingdom parables in Matthew 13. After his resurrection, we're told in Acts chapter 1, he spent 40 days speaking to them things pertaining the kingdom of God. Clearly, one of Jesus' favorite subjects was the kingdom. And what he's telling us here is, I as the king am telling the subjects of the kingdom how by my grace... A kingdom dweller ought to look and how a kingdom dweller ought to live. And and how is that exactly? How is a kingdom dweller to act? How is a kingdom dweller to live? What does that look like? In a word, different. You and I are to be different from everybody else. We're to be different from religious people. We're to be different from worldly people. And that's seen over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. Skip down to uh, uh, verse 21 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Look down at verse 27. 
You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Go down to verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Now to verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Then would you go down to chapter 6, the 8th verse, sort of sums up this contrasting idea. Therefore, do not be like them. Don't take your cues from them. Religious people or worldly people, you are to be different. Listen, Christianity is the ultimate counterculture. We are to be contramundum against the flow of the world. And listen, just a glance at the Beatitudes will show you that. Look at them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Since when did the world ever buy that? They didn't. They're never into that. In fact, J.B. Phillips, who wrote a brilliant translation of the New Testament, rewrites the Beatitudes. He says, if the world were to have written the Beatitudes, they would sound like this. Happy are the pushers, for they get on in the world. Happy are the hard-boiled, for they never let life hurt them. Happy are those who complain, for... They get their own way in the end. Happy are the blasé, for they never worry over their sins. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are the knowledgeable men of the world, for they know their way around. Happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. Folks, there's not one single paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount that doesn't display this contrast that Christians are to be different than the world. And our big danger is fitting in rather than sticking out in the appropriate manner. And we'll see what that manner is in weeks to come. So I'm giving this series a title. I'm calling the series Living Life Against the Flow. Living Life Against the Flow. That's the introduction to the sermon. I want to close by making a few predictions. I'm going to predict that if we read and study and apply this Sermon on the Mount, this Sermon of the Monarch, I'm going to predict three things. Number one, it will slay you. You and I are going to read it, and it's going to annihilate and eradicate any notion of our own goodness. You might think, well, don't worry, I can keep this Sermon on the Mount by my own power, my own strength. Hmm. Think again. You'll reevaluate that thinking, and I will as we go through it. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I remember an unbeliever glibly telling me as I was witnessing to him about his need for Christ. He said, well, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. And I thought either he's never read it, or he doesn't understand it, or he's a liar. Because you on your own strength cannot keep the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 20, we read, Unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most religious folks of the land, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And so it brings you to the need of a new birth as you read this, the change of being born again. So it will slay you. Number two, it will satisfy you. That's what the Beatitudes are all about, blessed or oh, how happy, literally translated. It will tell you how to be happy. It speaks about the inner life of those who follow Christ. So on one hand, the sermon shows that the crowd can't keep the standard, but it shows that Christians can, by God's grace infusing them and spirit infusing them, can keep it. You know what most Americans want? They want to be happy. James Patterson and Peter Kim wrote a book called The Day America Told the Truth. I don't know what day that was, but they wrote a book on it. And they interviewed different Americans on different subjects, and they discovered the number one goal of most Americans is to be happy. But what most Americans say happiness is, is being thin and rich. Jesus will tell us how to be happy, truly satisfied. It will slay you. It will satisfy you. And third, I predict, it will supply you. It will supply you with all that you need, all that I need to become walking advertisements of the gospel. It's, it's time that people see the gospel in our lives and by looking at our lives say, I want what you have. I want to be where you're at. I want to know the God that you know. You will become a walking magnet for the gospel as you and I take in this Sermon on the Mount, apply it, and live it. After all, Jesus does say in chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Some years ago, a tornado blew through a small Midwest town. As it did, it took out the local church. I mean, it flattened it. There was nothing left. Following week, the newspaper ran a little article. We are pleased to announce that the cyclone which blew through the town and destroyed the church last week did no real damage to the town. Isn't that sad? A church is destroyed and yet the paper says did no damage to the town. For a church to become so irrelevant that it's missing, nobody misses its being gone, is tragic. May we be God's light and God's salt and be so attractive to unbelievers that they just got to see what you have. Heavenly Father, that's what we pray for. We honestly do. We pray that the life of Jesus Christ would be so abundant in us that it's, it's, it's more than anything else it's not about church. It's about Jesus. It's not about what we do, but who we are displayed in what we do. And Lord, I pray that we would honor the master, the king of the kingdom, by coming to an end of ourselves and letting you live through us so that your life is so powerfully displayed that we become not only satisfied but sanctified, holy, and attractive to unbelievers as they see us at work, as they see us through the week, as they observe us at school or at home. Make that happen, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.